0: Welcome to Impact AI, the podcast for startups who want to create a better future through the use of machine learning. I'm your host, Heather Couture. Today I'm joined by guest Steve Brumby, co-founder, CEO, and CTO of Impact Observatory, to talk about sustainability and environmental risk analysis. Steve, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Heather. Very glad to be here.
0: Steve, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to create Impact Observatory?
1: Sure. So. My PhD is uh, originally in uh, theoretical physics and astrophysics and uh, from from Australia. And 20 years ago, I was recruited to one of the big U.S. national labs to work on the space program, um, which I which was sort of fulfilling a childhood dream. I came to the United States. I was in uh, Los Alamos, New Mexico, out in the desert. Um, and there, the initial problem was looking at the sky from a telescope that was actually in orbit and searching for rare supernova events so stars blowing up um, and, and the problem that the, the problem came down to and this is the story of my whole career um too much raw data not enough high value interesting detections um <clears throat> so that, that opportunity uh, gave me my first introduction to the idea of okay how can we build automated artificial intelligence systems that can assist with the processing and analysis of very large amounts of data to find possibly quite rare interesting bits of information and not replace the humans but provide that information to humans in a better way so uh, and, and in a more timely way so um, i started off looking at the sky from from, from orbit with this space-based astronomy Um, From that, I got into planetary exploration missions. I was very excited to work on uh, analysis of missions to Mars and missions to Titan, the moon of Saturn, um, and some lunar stuff in there, too. It was a lot of fun. But uh, even at the time, 20 years ago, um, my mentor at at Los Alamos advised me that there was a lot more career opportunity in looking at the Earth from space than than, uh, doing the fun stuff like uh, going on Mars expeditions. So I got into Earth Observation um, and and it just so happened that this was about the time that there were a series of very, very large catastrophic wildfires (coughs) that uh, stretched across a lot of the Southwest United States. Um, So the work that I'd been doing that was more sort of academic, suddenly became uh, very applied, very real world. Um, I was personally involved in in using some of my machine learning techniques to analyze damage after a very large wildfire that almost destroyed Los Alamos lab back in 2000, Um, ended up burning down 10% of the town, uh, made me a refugee for a few weeks. Um, In the aftermath of that, I I volunteered to do a lot of the damage assessment, and that, that was a sort of turning point for me to get heavily into understanding environmental risk. I did that for US government for 15 years, worked on all sorts of real world problems, which I'm happy to go into some of it. Um, And then eight years ago, um, having built up expertise in, at that point, the very new field of what is now called deep learning, um, I had the opportunity to spin my research team out of Los Alamos with venture backing and start a venture-backed company called Descartes Labs, um, which uh, specialized in or specializes in um, agricultural forecasting. Um, I was the founding CTO. Did that for a few years, um, got sort of, uh, I've always thought that there was more to do than just agricultural crop forecasting. So after a few years, I, uh, I left ACAT and uh, I was recruited to National Geographic Society to work on um, environmental risk monitoring in general, built up a new team and <laughs> I guess I'm establishing a pattern here. Two years ago now, I spun that team out of National Geographic and started Impact Observatory. Okay, so
0: what does Impact Observatory do, and why is this important for sustainability and environmental risk analysis?
1: Right. So Impact Observatory, as the name suggests, is designed to give decision makers all around the world access to the sort of data that Actually, the U.S. government and the big firms on Wall Street now currently have access to, um, and I know that because I used to work for U.S. government and I used to work <laughs> with Wall Street firms when I was at Descartes Labs. <clears throat> so, Impact Observatory is designed to use satellite imagery and artificial intelligence, which, you know, for this audience, we can we can be a bit more precise to uh, use deep learning algorithms that um, look at the spatial, spectral, and temporal information from time sequences of observations from orbit and use that to understand how the world is changing in near real time and deliver that to decision makers in very easy to consume ways so that you can address direct questions that decision makers have like how much deforestation is happening in the watershed for my city or you know, there's a whole lot of people growing crops um, in some region. And are they following sustainable um, agricultural practices, like, you know, even just simple ones like crop rotation? Um, at the moment, there is uh, people may have seen recently there was a uh, John Oliver expose of, on uh, carbon offsets and carbon markets. There's a lot of, of um, interest and really demand for better Practices from industry. There's a lot of investors um, looking to make sure that their investment dollars go to companies that are part of the future, which is a sustainable future because it has to be. Um, and there's a lot of concern that um, some of the opportunities that are advertised are, you know, the most blunt version of the term is greenwashed—that they just they appear to be sustainable or green, but in fact they're they're just green in name only. Um, and, and so there's a real need for verifiable data it's independent of the people making the claim and can help everybody both the industrial folks who are maybe acting on the ground including the farmers to demonstrate that they're following best practices for investors and stakeholders including governments who have payment for performance systems or other sort of incentives for better perform better better practice sustainable ag- agricultural practices or forestry practices um, to be able to identify the folks who are doing the right thing. And the mission of impact observatory is to provide that missing data in a way at a previously un- unavailable scale and speed um, through the power of AI powered automation.
0: So how do you use machine learning in this setting? Maybe there's an example of an input and an output for one of your models that could help clarify this.
1: Sure. So um, while my team and I were at National Geographic Society, um, we we heard many, many problems of facing, for example, the conservation community who were, you know, like really struggling with trying to understand um, changes that were happening all around the world. And Uh, being able to explain to their stakeholders, so um, the governments in the countries they operate, uh, um, their investors, their philanthropic um, uh, people who donate to these different conservation efforts, they wanted to be able to show the impact of their actions. So what we do at Impact Observatory, and we started to do this at at GEO, and we're still doing it, um, and we're doing it now as Impact Observatory, is that we take satellite observations that are collected every day. So for example, the European Space Agency, and in fact, it's broader than just the European Space Agency, it's called the Copernicus Program. The Copernicus Program of European Union nations have funded a constellation of satellites that currently produce the world's best scientific grade uh, satellite imagery that's made available for free on several, on all the major commercial clouds. So it's available on Microsoft Azure. It's it's available on um, Amazon AWS. It's available on Google Cloud. This data from these satellites, which are called the Sentinel satellites, um, it, uh, the data is being collected every day, every essentially every week. They end up with a new um, set of photos that completely covers the globe, um, and they've been doing this for five years now so uh, for these um so some, for some uh, private conservationists who have very large land holdings in africa we take the satellite imagery that record the observations of how their land and their surrounding area has changed over the last five years we use a machine learning algorithm so a deep learning algorithm to turn the pixels both the visible wavelength pixels and also the infrared so the stuff that's photographs of the earth that are invisible to the naked eye, um, take that that visible and infrared data and turn it into what's what are called thematic maps. So this is basically just a a standard categorization map. So at a given pixel, is it grassland? Is it trees? Is it, is it, uh, is it settlement? Is it water? Is it cropland? There's a, there's a basic category of about eight land cover categories that are typically used by the scientific community to describe land cover and land use. Um, And that process of turning satellite photos into maps, quantitative maps, um, has historically been a manual process. It's uh, people have attempted to automate it in the past, I I know, because I've worked on different versions of it over the last 20 years. Um, And in June of last year, we actually demonstrated the world's first fully automated deep learning powered global land use land cover map at 10 meter resolution, which we did in collaboration with our friends at um, ESRI, who is the world leader in uh, map making software, and Microsoft Azure, who, um, because of my previous work, and the relationship we had with them trusted us with the keys to their shiny new planetary computer, which has turned out to be a fantastic resource.
0: So is it the the land cover outputs from these models that are most relevant for the work at Impact Observatory? Or are there other types of annotations that you need in order to get some other type of thematic map that's important for a particular application?
1: Okay, so now this is is really one of the most interesting things that I've learned over my career. Um, You can be a machine learning scientist and you can come up with a fantastic algorithm. Um, and your work is not done, because you have to produce outputs in a format that really ties in to the workflow of the customer. So in our case, we're working with a decision maker who knows their land well, um, typically has no knowledge of machine learning and very limited knowledge of how to use if you just give them an aerial photograph or if you just give them a satellite image they'll look at it they can see major features that are obvious to the naked eye but if you give them a time stack of it they're lost so we use a machine learning algorithm to make a time series of maps and we have demonstrated that we can we can process um, millions of satellite images in a week there there was a, a nice article when we first did the work in um June of last year, there was a nice BBC News article about the stuff we had done with ESRI and with uh, with Microsoft. Um, and there was a um, and so you can you can take these individual maps. But most people they don't, they they, they don't want the pixels. And really, they almost don't even want the map, they want to know a number, they want to know, for example, how much deforestation happened in my watershed or how much wetland got bulldozed because somebody's building a settlement upstream and what's that gonna do to my water supply? So we go the further step to say, okay, here's the time sequence. Now here are the interesting changes that we observe from time step to time step. And even better, you tell us your area of interest and we'll give you the key indicators for that area, describing the changes that most matter to you And we provide that as through an an API. So you can just subscribe to that and get that, uh, get those key numbers that can go straight into your Excel spreadsheet or straight into your other analysis code. Um, And that focusing on what people really need to answer the questions that they have, um, I think is one of those things that uh, I think the the machine learning for impact community, um, this is, this is, this is one of the things that I think uh, is helpful for people to understand the difference between technology versus a solution that somebody will pay you for.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you, and you can only find that out by talking to the end user and understanding their needs. You know, the machine learning people can dream up any kind of output, but it's not necessarily the, the right and relevant output that they come up with. It's, it's the end user that needs to help define this.
1: Yes, and there's there's other domain experts in the in the value chain as well. So one of the things that's a little bit unusual um, for us, uh, and and uh, and this is where I'm really grateful for the opportunity to have worked at Los Alamos National Lab for so long, is that um, applying machine learning to satellite imagery and aerial imagery is. It seems superficially similar to sort of garden variety social media imagery or you know just general photography but it does have some quirks um not least of which is what to do with those extra bands that usually come with the with the better satellite images uh, satellites um and uh and typically not not present on standard photography um and and to understand the phenomenology of what the signal in those extra bands tell you across time so the team that we've built at impact observatory and we're about 20 people at the moment um we've been operating for two years um it has a mixture of machine learning people and remote sensing science people and um and software engineers and machine learning ops engineers and devops engineers that that marshal the infrastructure that we need to be able to build the models informed by the best remote sensing science, and then deploy and execute those models at scale.
0: So how does that interdisciplinary team work together? Are they collaborating on a daily basis at some other interval? Does the knowledge flow both ways from machine learning to domain experts and back again? or What have you found works well with your team?
1: Yeah and just this and just again this this general idea that um, having this is uh, this is not my second startup and, and so i'm both have the benefit of everything i learned from my first startup and, and also i'm seeing what's common between the two um, and what I, is, I think being proven to be successful and it's no surprise a startup is is a team sport You really do need to think about what is the team you're building from day one how do they work together how does the information flow between different people are you giving are are you are you letting each voice be heard and are you uh making sure that everybody is um like you know listening to those experts there is a back and forth between people um the this and it, it tends to be domain experts like the machine learning people and the remote sensing people, the remote sensing science at the moment, because remote sensing is a much more mature field, information tends to flow from remote sensing towards machine learning. Though the machine learning people have also got the ability to do very large scale experiments that were historically not not even feasible and give feedback to the remote sensing scientists about, oh, some of the things that you've always done without really good justification, um, maybe actually some of those things aren't necessary. Uh, there's been several times over the years where uh, we've actually, by by exploring scales of data that are far above what was feasible 10, 20 years ago, um, we start to discover that some things that were reasonably well no- thought of in the literature are actually less important than than, than some other factors. And And there's very much a, I think one of the biggest differences between say academic research on machine learning and, and startup land, ML AI and ML and startup land is you have to be prepared to go as simple as possible. Um, that might sound like not a surprise, but it's still sometimes shocking to people who come out of academia where they're incentivized to add a small bell or whistle to a previous result so that their, their work is, is uh, publishable. Um, the name of the game in AI is if the customer doesn't think it's valuable, it's not valuable. And the customer doesn't care if you, if the editors of the journal that you want to get into are excited about your result. They just want to know how well does it work and how robust is the result across time and across their full area of interest. So it's been really exciting watching the team that we're building at Impact Observatory, the engineers and the machine learning Algorithm engineers, who are also engineers, sometimes there's a artificial distinction between scientists and engineers. Um, the machine learning folks, the infrastructure folks, the remote sensing science folks, the interplay between them is is really fascinating and um, and very exciting because we're in a um, I don't know if you would call it a golden age or a silver age. Maybe it's a we're definitely we're in a um, I am tempted to call it a golden age of commercial space, where just you know a number of the very first commercial space companies are still active. Um, you know, Maxar and Airbus are out there, but there's also the new companies, new kids on the block like Planet Labs, that have no longer particularly new um, and have reached an initial a level of maturity where the data that they're producing is really interesting. And so there's just there's just a lot of opportunity.
0: You you mentioned the case where because machine learning engineers have so much more data available, they can discover things that wasn't necessary from the remote sensing side. What, what about the reverse? Have you run into situations where a machine learning engineer might tackle a problem from one point of view and totally miss something that would be obvious and actually quite essential that a remote sensing person or some other domain expert who knows what's going on on the ground that becomes key to, to that project success.
1: Yes. So, um, you know, so I, I won't mention names in this bit because, uh, um, but I will say that we will, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, over, over the course of my career, I've worked with some teams where sometimes I've encountered folks who are very excited about applying machine learning to satellite imagery. Um, and, they're maybe less experienced with using satellite imagery before they start. And the first thing that they want to try is to go to the literature and find the biggest and most successful existing model. Um, and we all know there's there's plenty of very large um, models that are very useful in natural language processing and and very useful in, you know, being able to understand everything that's going on in a in a TikTok video or a YouTube video, um, and if you just blindly apply those to satellite imagery time series, you can unfortunately you can pretty easily fool yourself into thinking that you've got something, when in fact you've produced something that's either overtrained, or is undertrained, and when you go and apply it to some other stuff, you get results that you just can't understand, um, and by overcomplicating things with very complicated academically well, you know, there's academic support for some of the model choices, but when you actually go and try it out, it turns out it just doesn't doesn't generalize to the new domain. Um, there are plenty of examples like that that I've encountered over the years, where a little bit of domain expertise, a little bit of talking to the experts who know, oh, if you're using this type of imagery, you should do this to it. It'll just make your life easier. You don't have to have the computer under relearn. 50 years of remote sensing science from from de novo from scratch. Um, that that's uh, you know that there's there's plenty of stuff like that that can flow from from pre pre machine learning science into um, into the machine learning world.
0: Yeah, I think that's true in, in just about every application in machine learning. There's those who understand the data and can provide some background for the machine learning person. I can save them time. It can get them to a better model. It can provide a lot of better insights to the project with, with that collaboration.
1: Yes. And it's, I mean, it, in a lot of ways, it's, it's obvious, um, but it's worth reminding people that um, they shouldn't overlook that step. You, yeah. you, with any machine learning problem, you really want to understand your inputs as well as you can. And you really want to understand which is the conversation with the domain experts and the conversation with the instrument experts that record from the real world. And you want to be talking to the customers so that you understand what the output needs to be. Yeah.
0: So one of the largest concerns with AI right now is, is bias. One of the ways that bias can occur with spatial geospatial data is through training models on data that focused on some regions of the world and applying it to other geographic locations are there other ways that models can be come in this domain?
1: Uh, yes. So there's, there's, there's a few things about bias there. And also, well, well, let's, let's talk about bias first. This is a real interesting question. So, so one of the things, one of the things that I'm particularly um, excited about with the work we've been doing at Impact Observatory is that, um, so the work at Impact Observatory comes out of work that my team was doing at National Geographic Society and part of the mission of National Geographic and part of the reason we got into this is that National Geographic works, they send explorers out to every corner of the world to bring back stories and, um, you know, shine a light on interesting stuff star- on the wonders of the world and all sorts of interesting things going on and threats that maybe people don't fully and un- fully haven't realized yet. And, uh, and so I would have these conversations with explorers that had just come back and they would come back from the very far north, like, you know, far north of the Arctic Circle. Um, and uh, so this one guy is a brilliant photographer of wolves and other creatures. His name is uh, Ronan Donovan. Um, he, uh, you know, he, he, would, he, he checked in with me to see if there was any maps that could be useful for him on his next expedition up there. And when we went and looked, there was like there was no maps available. He was He was literally off the regular map by being so far north. But if if you look at the satellite observations, you can see that the satellites are recording there. So, you know, like where's the where's the where's the map for that area? Um, There's a ton of reasons. So so talking to Ronan, talking to the people who go out to these far corners really taught us that, you know, we need to be building maps that work for people wherever they are. Um, So when we went to train our machine learning model to produce a global map, we didn't do the more typical thing, which is to reuse training data that was say, available for the United States and then train a model and apply it globally. That's a classic pattern that I think many people listening will probably recognize. Um, Instead, what we did was we actually took the hard step of building the world's by far the world's largest, most detailed and most geographically diverse training data set. Um, so, uh, so as described in a paper that just appeared this year in Nature Scientific Data, um, which uh, maybe we'll give the reference in the, um, in the information for the podcast um, on the website. Um, that paper, in that paper, we described the methodology where we basically used human photo interpretation experts Um, we use stratified sampling. So a way of sampling from locations all around the world to find the, um, you know, to find really important places, um, and then use that to train a crowd to produce a, an overwhelmingly large training data set, which we were able to use to, to have the computer, um, produce a map that achieved, um, in our estimation, um, you know, absolutely world-class results globally, fully automatically. Um, and we estimate that the training data set that we produced um, was 10,000 times bigger than the previously biggest available data set, which was the Big Earth Net produced by the European Union. Um, so we produced something like 5 billion human labeled pixels for that National Geographic data set that was part of the Dynamic World Consortium. Um, the, we're uh, in partnership with uh, National Geographic, in partnership with Google and with World Resources Institute. So since we left National Geographic, uh, my team and I have continued to develop this methodology and to continue to work on it. And um, and it's just it's just really important that if you're going to be teaching models to work around the world, that you really have to, um, to take that seriously, that you are training the models to work globally and uh, and now we find that we are getting opportunities to take our global map, which is which is a very good average result for the whole world, and start to refine it to produce better and better localized results that that address specific user needs in different parts of the world. Um, and we hope that this approach um, and the sort of way that we're sharing our global annual maps as a public good. Uh, on esri living atlas and on microsoft as your planetary computer um and and actually yeah they're also available on other platforms too um those data sets um are democratizing ai-powered mapping and monitoring in a way that is not previously hadn't previously happened
0: that that's quite powerful i'll definitely have to look up the reference to that paper and include it in, in the show notes do you, Have any advice you could offer to other founders of AI-powered startups?
1: Yeah, so my main advice to other other founders is, some of this is gonna sound, it's sort of straightforward, but um, here it is, here's what I've learned from from 20 years of doing this. And and I was always entrepreneurial, even as a postdoc, I was, I guess I was a little bit suspect as a scientist from day one, because I was thinking about how do I how do I fund my research? How do I get to work on what I want to work on? How do, so early on in my career, I learned if I wanted to work on what I wanted to work on and not what, say, some supervisor wanted me to work on, um, then I needed to learn how to win money. And to learn to win money, you have to learn about the customers, whether it's a sponsor or an, an academic sponsor in an academic setting or whether it's a real world customer who could be in governments or in in industry or in markets, you have to get to know the customer, get to um, find out where their pain points are, and, and be putting and be connecting those dots because there's way more problems in the world than there are solutions. So there's plenty of opportunity to for people who are trained up on the latest types of machine learning, there is a gazillion opportunities for you to find real pain point that would have measurable impact if somebody solved it and to be able to then use your knowledge of machine learning and different types of data to craft a solution that works for them and if you're lucky that solution it doesn't just work for one customer but works for a bunch of customers and then hopefully you have a product Um, and as I mentioned earlier you don't need to it doesn't need to be a thing that solves every problem, and in fact, things that solve every problem basically don't exist in real life. Um, so, be happy if you find something that has a large enough um, addressable market that you can uh, that you can um, that you can find a niche for yourself. And I think um, the other the other piece of advice is that. Doing this again, and in fact, actually, in some ways, this is actually my third technology that's reached the point of commercialization. When I was a postdoc, I invented a, I was a part of a team that invented a, a machine, an early, early, early pre-deep learning machine learning system called Genie, G E N I E, that actually was used for satellite imagery, and it turned out you could also use it for cancer cell detection in microscopy, imagery, digital microscopy. Um, and uh, at the time it was really interesting developing the tech and it was fascinating to see how that technology was commercialized by the national lab to a couple of different companies who licensed it Um, and that experience convinced me that the next time i invented something i didn't want to just sit back and watch it get licensed and walk out the door um I, I couldn't i couldn't be in, well it was hard for me to be involved in the in the company at that point because i was a green card holder um actually i was an h1 visa holder which is even worse um but uh, but that taught me that i wanted to be involved in in commercializing the tech i wanted it to go all the way to actually being used um so when i had the opportunity to start Descartes labs i jumped on that opportunity um i learned a lot from that um I, I really paid attention to where I needed to improve as an entrepreneur after that first experience. And, um, and I'm really enjoying this opportunity with the Impact Observatory to build the team I want and find this team that works together so well and apply it to applications. Environmental risk monitoring is one of the big challenges of the next 20 years. Um, there's an enormous addressable market there if you can find the right practical solutions. And we're super excited. So, so, the, so the advice to, to founders is find the things you're passionate about. You, don't just be passionate about the tech, but also be passionate about that you really want to help the customers in that space. Um, and don't be surprised if it takes you a few tries at startups that you, uh, before you actually get to the startup that you, uh, you, you really want to, to be a part of. That's
0: really helpful. Where do you see the impact of Impact Observatory in three to five years?
1: Right. So if uh, things go according to plan, um, which of course they never do, or if they go reasonably similar to according to plan, Uh, We really hope so. So we've been very, very fortunate at Impact Observatory. We currently have been selected by UN um, UN Environment Program and UN Development Program to we currently power a thing called the UN Biodiversity Lab, um, which is a publicly available platform providing the machine learning powered monitoring data that we produce at I.O. to uh, developing world countries for free. we so we're currently helping all sorts of countries uh, with that type of with um, with with uh, information via our UN partnerships. We have some amazing channel partnerships with with Esri and with Microsoft to bring our commercial premium products to market. And in fact, we expect to be launching our first um, commercial services in uh, Q4 of this year, um, which we initially sort of announced at the Esri User Conference in July of this year um and uh, my my hope is that within a couple of years um, anybody who has a company anybody who's in government um, anybody who's in a in, in an investor looking to invest in companies or investing in uh, corporate bonds and um, and municipal bonds and national bonds sovereign bonds um, will be able to get the sort of environmental risk information that they wish they had and that that, independently verifiable environmental risk data will provide a level playing field that will allow the money to flow to the companies and actors who are part of the solution that we need to achieve the sustainable world.
0: Steve, this has been great. You and your team were doing some interesting work with geospatial data and sustainability. I expect the insights you've shared will be valuable to other machine learning companies. Where can people find out more about you online?
1: Thank you, Heather. So, Impact Observatory, um, spelled just like it sounds. So, impactobservatory.com. dot um, and we're also on Twitter. And also, you can look me up, Steve Brumby, and that's an easy way to uh, to find us. And that um, contact info will, I uh, assume, will be with the with the podcast. So, yep. thank you, everybody. Thanks again for the time and the opportunity. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for joining me. All right, everyone, thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI.